I gotta tell you, this Texan is willing to acknowledge that many good things come out of the state of Wisconsin. Hard to believe. I don't necessarily put the Green Bay Packers in that category, but certainly Paul Ryan, Governor Scott Walker, Chairman Ryan's previous, and the list goes on. A lot of good things come out of Wisconsin, including the Ripon Society. Um, well, Jim was uh, right. I uh, told my trusty uh, media communications staff that I was just going to wing it this morning. I think when you invited me originally, it was to speak mainly about the agenda of the country, but I think perhaps some other events have since taken over. So I'd like to comment a little bit on the issues of the day, and then I will try to keep a eye on my watch, if not Kirsten's within the in sight, and tell me when I've droned on too long, and hopefully leave time for Q&A. Uh, I am reminded, after having spent, I guess, weekend before last in Washington, many of you know I live in Dallas, I work up here, I commute back and forth. I have a son who's 10 in the fourth grade, a daughter who's 11 in the sixth grade. But I still vividly recall about five years ago, and again, as a commuting member of Congress, I've been stuck in Washington maybe two or three weekends a year. But I guess my daughter was five at the time, and she was used to seeing me on the weekends. And I was working on a Saturday, and I called her. We started chatting, and she finally said, Daddy, what day is it? I said, well, Claire, today is Saturday, and I wish Daddy could be home, but Daddy's working in Washington. And she said, Saturday? Well, that's funny. It's Saturday here, too. <laughs> Right, Claire. It's amazing the things they were teaching in kindergarten. <laughs> so we talked to him for a little while longer. And she said, Now, Daddy, where are you again? I said, Well, Daddy's in Washington, D.C. You know that Daddy works in Washington, D.C. And then she said something I thought was very profound for a five year old Daddy, is Washington, D.C. in America? <laughs> and you started to think out of the mouths of babes, but I think as the people in the heartland of America look at what is going on, or perhaps more accurately what is not going on, in the nation's capital, they may too wonder, as my then five-year-old daughter wondered, is Washington, D.C. in America? I would say this about our president, and I don't know him well, because believe it or not, we don't spend a lot of quality time together. <laughs> I do know that the president, uh, at one point in his professional career, taught constitutional law. Uh, my reading of the Constitution is that it is Congress that has the power of the purse. Nowhere in the Constitution do I read the power of the rubber stamp. And so from the perspective of House Republicans, I would say that we have felt like we are being asked to simply rubber stamp a spending plan of the President's and then give him a blank check to borrow money in which to fund it. House Republicans stand ready to negotiate with the President. We have put one offer on the table. We have put two offers on the table. We put three offers on the table. We have put four offers on the table. We are not through negotiating, 
but I do believe we are through negotiating with ourselves. Uh, I've been married now for 19 years, and I don't know, I don't quite recall the context, but I remember one of the first things my mother-in-law said, the least you can do in life is show up. I don't know if she was talking about my wedding, but <laughs> I did show up. My wife and I just celebrated our 19th anniversary, but if the least you can do in life is show up, the president has yet to show up. He has yet to show up and negotiate. He doesn't miss an opportunity to uh, call the speaker, meet with the speaker, hold a press conference to reiterate, I'm still not negotiating. Ultimately, I do not believe that is going to prove to be a defensible position with the American people. Uh, we are painfully aware that the uh, Democratic Party controls the White House. We are painfully aware they control the Senate. Uh, but the people entrusted the people's house to the Republican Party, and in divided government, the least you can do is show up and talk to each other and negotiate, and I believe it's what the American people uh, demand of us. So yes, this is a fight that very much started out over the less than affordable Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. I still find it somewhat intriguing and fascinating that Democrats who have been working on their vision of a one-payer socialized system of health care since Harry Truman, what is that, two, three generations, expect the Republican Party to wave the white flag in our vision of patient-centered health care after three years. Uh, this is not something we intend to do. Uh, my guess is, uh, be it uh, Lamar or Mike or Steve or whoever my current colleagues are here, rarely does a day go by that I don't get some correspondence from somebody in the 5th Congressional District saying, Congressman Henserling, due to Obamacare, my premiums just went up $1,500. Congressman, due to Obamacare, I just got cut to 29 hours at my job and I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. And yeah, I suppose you're probably getting this correspondence daily, too. So we're not going to go silently into the night. Now, having said that, we have read a statute. And the sad reality is you cannot repeal, delay, defund, deform, or otherwise alter the president's signature legislation without the president's signature. Since 95%, give or take, of this statute happens to be mandatory spending. But again, we will not be silent. But the last offer that uh, the speaker put on the table was quite simple about Obamacare. If it's going to be imposed upon our country, at least let it be imposed equally. After roughly 11,500 <coughs> waivers, uh, after numerous delays, um, if there's one thing that I believe the American people will not abide by is Washington elites passing laws for them to live under that they will not live under themselves. Uh, and so if Obamacare is good enough for the American people, why isn't it good enough for the gentleman named Obama? Uh, why isn't the White House, the President, the Vice President, the Cabinet also subject to this law, as are members of Congress? 
Uh, I assure you, I don't want to put my family in the exchanges. I would prefer not to lose the employer contribution to health care, but I don't want to live by laws that the American people have to abide by that somehow I'm exempted from. And I want to make sure that the law is followed. In addition, if Obamacare is not ready for prime time for employers, why is it ready for prime time for employees? It's not. It's a matter of fairness. It's a matter of equal protection under the laws. So that was the offer that was put on the table. But again, this debate is frankly much larger uh, than the President's Health Care Act. Because not only do we hear complaints about the health care, uh, we all know that we continue to be in the midst of the weakest, slowest, most tepid recovery um, in the post-war era. Tens of millions of our fellow countrymen remain unemployed and underemployed. They go to bed each night wondering how they're going to wake up in the morning and make ends meet. And we have no doubt, no doubt, that the regulatory red tape policies of this administration, be it the Affordable Care Act, be it Dodd-Frank, uh, be it EPA, NLRB, CFPB, and every other alphabet soup agency that is making it more difficult to create jobs, hope, and opportunity in America, is why we continue to have this non-recovery recovery. And at the same time, and I was chatting with some folks at my table here, if I have one great regret in my congressional career, it is my inability to really sensitize my fellow countrymen to the peril that the national debt represents. Uh, we are on the precipice <coughs> of a debt crisis, the likes of which I do not believe our nation has ever seen. And I wish there was more I could do about that. Um, certainly, Chairman Bernanke and other folks at the Fed have certainly facilitated uh, the ability of this administration to create more debt in four years than our nation ranked, racked up in its first 200. Uh, but just the other day, I guess it was uh, two weeks ago, Doug Elmendorf at the Congressional Budget Office issued their latest long-term report that said, shock of all shocks, the budget of the United States of America is unsustainable. Unsustainable. As a guy who um, spent four terms on the Budget Committee, was on Simpson Bowles, co-chair the less than super, super committee, if the offer comes, I don't expect it will, I would hopefully politely decline the opportunity to chair the super duper committee. <laughs> but my, um, <clears throat> the memory on my laptop is almost full of reports and testimony of CBO, GAO, private economists, think tanks, all using the word unsustainable. So the president says, yet again, I will not negotiate over the debt ceiling. I think to some extent it's because Republicans care about the debt and Democrats care about the debt ceiling. Democrats, at least in our committee, uh, don't particularly care about the debt. 
as was evidenced when I became chairman, uh, I turned on the national debt clock to make sure that it weighed heavily upon all the decision-making proceedings of the House Financial Services Committee. Um, I don't recall the exact words of one of my Democratic colleagues, uh, but it was something along the lines of this is a cheap political stunt, and they requested that it be taken down. Uh, at least uh, gave them half a loaf and said I would honor their request that then when they spoke, I would take down the national debt clock. But otherwise, the national debt clock would remain running in our committee proceedings. Um, the president wishes us to literally rubber stamp the debt ceiling increase. Um, he has said that he will not negotiate. That is not how history has occurred in America. As many of y'all know, um, roughly half the time, well, I think I have the stat right. If I recall right, we have increased the debt ceiling 53 times since I was an undergraduate at Texas A&M University. Be happy to talk about A&M football after the proceedings. <laughs> Far more pleasant subject to it the national debt. But out of those times, half of those times, we negotiated something, Congress with the White House, to try to do something about spending or the deficit. It is the norm. It is not the exception. Anything that passes for fiscal responsibility in the federal city has typically been attached to the debt ceiling. Uh, be it Graham Rudman, the signature, one of the signature laws of my mentor, Phil Grant, attached to a debt ceiling. Hago, uh, the Budget Control Act most recently that brought the sequester. As painful as the blunt instrument is, it is frankly quite an achievement in divided government uh, for House Republicans to now have played a central role in federal government spending increasing two years in a row. Uh, relative to the size of the problem, it's quite small. Relative to history and relative to what is doable in divided government, uh, frankly, our speaker and our leadership and our conference do not get sufficient credit for this achievement, and it will have a huge impact uh, on the out years. So I believe under this speaker, as you may recall, he laid down the Boehner rule that if Congress is going to be asked to increase the debt ceiling, then we had better find reforms and cuts to federal spending equal or greater. Uh, I think it's the least we can do for the American people and for future generations. Now, the president is stirring up the pot of default. Um, he need not do this. Back in May, the House passed the Full Faith and Credit Act, authored by our colleague Tom McClintock. Hey, you're supposed to give me the signal of 15. <laughs> Tom McClintock of California which says that we will remain current on our debt, that principal and interest payments on our debt will not count against the debt ceiling. That's the good news. As soon as the Senate takes it up, which they could do in a matter of hours, and with the stroke of the president's pen, the specter of default on sovereign debt can be removed. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. The president has already issued a veto threat on the Full Faith and Credit Act. 
Why would he do this? <coughs> I would suspect because he wants that specter there in order to again force Congress to rubber stamp his borrowing plans to go along with forcing us to rubber stamp his spending plans. I think most of you also know, although there are significant cash flow challenges at Treasury, uh, it currently, I guess thanks to some extent, to a great extent, the Federal Reserve is taking eight cents on the revenue, tax revenue dollar to remain current uh, on our bonds. So we have sufficient funds with which to do this. Uh, we are happy to give the president the express statutory authority, which many legal scholars believe that he already has to avoid this. Uh, but he will not take yes for an answer. So many have asked how this ends, and to paraphrase Mark Twain, I was glad I could answer so confidently and rapidly and say, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know it will end. Uh, and I do know uh, that House Republicans are committed again to having a brighter economy make sure that we have a lower tax and regulatory burden and that we not be the first generation in America's history to leave the next generation with less freedom, fewer opportunities, and a lower standard of living. Uh, we stand ready to negotiate in good faith. We do not expect to get everything that we desire in divided government. Uh, but again, we did not come here to rubber stamp the President's policies, uh, and under the leadership of Speaker Boehner, uh, I know that we will not. So uh, I hope this uh, ends, I hope it ends soon, I hope it ends favorably for the American uh, people. Uh, and I believe, frankly, in many respects, as anxious as we all are to get this done, uh, I think the President's position and Harry Reid's position are untenable. Now, I happen to know the reality of politics, that the President can get out a message in two minutes that will take the House Republican Conference two weeks to get out. And that's assuming we can get all 232 of us on the same message. But ultimately, for a President who um, talks about how veterans are getting hurt in the shutdown and then issues a veto threat on the House bill to open up veterans funding for a president who decries shutting down our national parks when I think it's his administration putting up the barricades to the open air monument and then issue a veto threat yet again. A veto threat on pediatric cancer research at the National Institute of Health Pediatric uh, on a veto threat on the Women, Infants, and Children program, and the list goes on. Ultimately, the national media is going to find it challenging to completely avoid reporting the truth of what is going on on the House floor. Uh, and I still believe, and I hope it's not that Mr. Smith goes to Washington in me, having been here much longer than Andy Barr, I have developed some form of citizen, citizenism, but I do believe ultimately that in America the people rule. And if the people, and if ultimately uh, the people see what is going on, I think they will rally to our position. Uh, and I believe again uh, that we can have brighter days ahead.
with that, I thank you very much, and I'd be happy to try to answer a few questions. Hopefully it's not as one of my supporters once told me after a fundraising dinner, Jeb, if I have to listen to you one more time, I think I'll slip my wrist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite that pessimistic. <laughs> Brian Worcester, as the introducer, you get the first question or you could pass. Sure. Uh, well, you mentioned both topics, I think, on most folks' mind right off the top, which is what uh, what we're looking forward to out of the committee here in, in, the, in the offing and, and what, the, what the showdown negotiation, what the state of play looks like. So you covered one, so if we could maybe move to the other and, and talk a little bit about what the, after we do come out the end of this, what. Um, what the committee's going to look like, hopefully, end of the year and next year? Well, indeed, we're getting uh, some things uh, kind of backed up in the pipeline um, through the process of the uh, government slowdown, if you will. Uh, as all of you know, some with more enthusiasm than others, yes, I'm looking at you, Lynn, we have uh, passed the uh, PATH Act, which is the House Financial Services Committee bill to reform the GSEs and FHA and to open up our markets to private capital. Uh, I had originally thought that would be going to the floor sometimes between um, mid to late October before Thanksgiving. I hope it still does, but um, again, things are getting backed up on the floor as they're getting backed up uh, in our committee as well. Uh, otherwise, uh, we have a uh, number of regulatory relief provisions um, that have been authored by certain members. Uh, I know Andy has one. I don't know if Steve Stivers is still here. He's authored a couple. There he is right over there. Um, sorry, you were hiding over there. Um, so um, we plan to uh, have some uh, markups soon. Uh, we have a number of bills that, frankly, are bipartisan in nature, and notwithstanding the fact that, yes, I used to be chairman of the Republican Study Committee, I think our committee has probably produced more bipartisan legislation than just about any other uh, standing committee, particularly a number of items uh, aimed at the derivatives title of Dodd-Frank. So uh, we will, in earnest, be in the regulatory relief business, starting out with a number of items that we believe will receive strong bipartisan support, um, which may or may not include the ranking member, we shall see. I've had a number of conversations with her. I think she will be supportive of a number of these um, provisions. Uh, ultimately, we would hope that the Senate would take some of those up. Um, they have not been diving into the exercise with reckless abandon, I shall say. Hopefully, <laughs> you can encourage our friends on that side of the Capitol to uh, to do such. Uh, in addition, um, for those of you who um, follow the CFPB, you know I have rather strong opinions about the agency. Again, it is nothing personal to Richard Cordray. Uh, I had breakfast with him the other day. I have no doubt that he is a fine public servant. Uh, I think he's working hard. Uh, but there is no agency in the history of America uh, that is less accountable and more powerful and can do more harm uh, to the financial services arena than the Orwellian named 
no agency of government within our jurisdiction uh, that calls for greater oversight, uh, and you will be seeing that day by day, week by week. Uh, we have a laundry list of uh, items uh, at the CFPB now that we expect answers to, <coughs> least of which is what are they doing with confidential consumer data? How are they gathering? How are they using it? But ultimately, this is an agency that, um, um, frankly, can be very abusive in its use of the term abusive and its statutory authority. So you will see a number of oversight hearings. You will be seeing a number of um, legislative items aimed at the CFPB. I guess today is the day that the uh, president is formally announcing that he is nominating Janet Yellen to be the next chair of the Fed. As many of you know, it is the 100th anniversary of the Federal Reserve. Um, so I joked with Chairman Bernanke not long ago, they'll be receiving a birthday gift from the House Financial Services Committee, and that is the most rigorous oversight that they have ever seen. <laughs> Many of us feel strongly that we now have a Federal Reserve that is way beyond monetary policy, uh, conducting fiscal policy. Um, and um, we think that um, it is time for the American people to take a very careful look at the history of the agency and whether or not it is not actually exacerbated on many occasions uh, our economic downturns. Uh, uh, last but not least, uh, we are still very concerned that some institutions in America are designated too big to fail, others too small to matter. Uh, it's an area that we will um, legislate carefully in, uh, but we have concluded that Dodd-Frank did not end too big to fail, but actually codified too big to fail. Uh, and I would suspect somewhere in the early new year uh, that you might see some legislation coming out of us there. Otherwise, um, I think many of you know you're interested in TRIA. We had our first hearing. Uh, it is my goal, I'm not signing a blood oath here, uh, but to have our committee work its will uh, no later than uh, hopefully mid to late January. I know that uh, markets need time to react to whatever we do, um, but I personally am most concerned about a temporary insurance program that A, doesn't seem to be temporary, and B, uh, doesn't seem to be insurance if no premiums are charged. So many of you have heard me on the subject in the past. Um, so we will, uh, whatever we propose, um, I would see significant reforms in that program. Anyway, there's a thousand other items. I'm sure I didn't touch on them, but at this pace, we're probably gonna have time for one more question. I don't know. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Thank you for your service and your former lives at uh, Simpson Bowles and as co-chair of the Super Committee. What lessons learned did you uh, take from those experiences that you would share with your colleagues so that we might enter a more successful negotiation this time? What, would you, what advice would you like to share? When the speaker calls, don't answer the call. <laughs> <laughs> No, if the truth be known, I foolishly volunteered for both of those uh, enterprises, and if asked to do it again, I would do it again. Uh, even if the chances of success are remote, uh, you got to try. Uh, you got to try. 
So um, that's an excellent question. I'm not sure that the answer is necessarily worthy of the question. Um, I would say that um, you have to quickly figure out who is there to be part of the problem and who is there to be part of the solution. Uh, and it is a fool's errand to sit down and have faux negotiations with those who are there to be part of the problem. Uh, I will not name names, uh, but it was quite clear in both of those enterprises uh, that some people were frankly there to blow it up, and it's a waste of time to speak to them. That's point number one. Uh, point number two, um, you're not going to get anything unless you give something. I know that seems obvious to me, but it's not. Uh, next, uh, even though the media will hound you, and there does need to be uh, accountability, there does need to be a level of transparency, but there also has to be some opportunity for people of opposing views and opposing parties to get behind closed doors and throw some things on the wall and see what might stick and what might not stick. Uh, and you can't always do that in front uh, of the cameras. Uh, you've got to unify your own team. Part of the problem in the less than super super committee, you may recall, five, six days before the entire effort finally broke down, Jim Clyburn, who I guess was the number three Democrat, got on national television and says, we haven't even agreed amongst ourselves on a plan. I, I cannot negotiate with a side that is still negotiating among themselves. So at least our team came together and put a number of plans on the table. But you know, it's a great question. It's one that could be asked of the speaker. It's one that could be asked of the leader. Uh, in some respects, you could argue we are zero for three on the big deal. And um, again, I did not leave those proceedings uh, terribly encouraged. Um, but I do know, again, that as powerful as the president is, ultimately he cannot repeal the laws of mathematics any more than he can repeal the laws of gravity. And one thing that we cannot escape is the math does not work on our social entitlement programs that are growing at five, six, seven, eight percent a year and an economy limping along at one and a half to two percent of GDP. Uh, and uh, I hope one day before it's too late uh, that they will come to the bargaining table and be willing to bargain. Again, we were willing to give up something. Uh, as former chair of the RSC, I was willing to put tax revenue on the table, something that is anathema to me and most of you in this room. It's not needed, it's not desired, it will hurt the economy. The very first offer I made to the Democrats. Okay, we want, we want the entitlement reforms contained in the House Republican budget authored by Paul Ryan. What size tax increase do you need to do that? discuss it. Absolutely refused to discuss it. We were told, uh, well, we won't do that, but before these proceedings are over, we will offer fundamental entitlement reform. 
good intents, there was no follow through. So I don't know where we go from there. But to the extent I learned lessons, those were the lessons. Do I have time for one more? If not, Jim, you're in charge. Going once, twice. We don't have time for one more. Thank you all very much. Thank you.